Airway compromise in children is a serious problem. Small airways, intricate anatomy, and potential congenital anomalies make airway management kind of tough. When it comes to a child needing a durable surgical airway, like a tracheotomy, sometimes it can be straightforward. But other times, creativity is key. Today, we are gonna discuss tracheotomy, both the indications and the procedure, with an expert. Sometimes in some children, you have to be very creative about what will work for them. That is Dr. Michael Rutter. He is an otolaryngologist and the director of the Aerodigestive Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. He is going to walk us through the indications for a pediatric tracheotomy, the procedural steps, and decannulation. There are a few intraoperative videos in this lecture, so be sure to check it out in the Stay Current app. Stick around. This is the Stay Current Podcast. Today, we are talking about tracheotomies, and first, we need to cover some of the basics. Sansa secretions. Those are no one's favorite part of tracheotomy care. There are a lot of reasons someone may need a tracheotomy, and most are related to limiting the duration of intubation and reducing the risk of airway complications. The older the patient, the less tolerant the airway is to long-term intubation. And the risk of complications of intubation, particularly subglottic stenosis, the size of the endotracheal tube is the biggest single influence. Subglottic stenosis sounds like a bad problem, especially in an already narrow pediatric airway. And the key concept here is prevention. And so the smallest endotracheal tube that permits adequate ventilation minimizes the risk of sub developing subglottic stenosis. Getting the right fit isn't quite the same as trying on a pair of jeans. It requires a few more metrics to ensure you have the right size tube for the right size child. You don't want to use the largest tube that fits. You want to use the smallest tube that allows you to adequately ventilate. And therefore you may even consider a slightly smaller tube with a cuff to permit uh, adequate ventilation. Ideally, you're looking for a subglottic pressure leak of less than 20 centimeters of water pressure. And there is less pressure on the larynx with a nasal intubation than with an oral intubation. But before we go around and give every intubated child a tracheotomy, we should consider the airway anatomic anomalies where a tracheotomy is contraindicated. That includes things like congenital distal tracheal stenosis, a sleeve trachea, and tracheal pouches. These two videos are a pre and post-operative view of a child with a sleeve trachea. So the whole trachea is one sheet of cartilage. This only happens in children with a cranial synostosis, so fifers, apids, cruzons, and these children um, some of them have a distal tracheal stenosis and placing a tracheotomy will cause problems, not fix problems. As you see in Dr. Rudder's bronchoscopies, there are multiple airway anomalies that are best overcome by repairing the underlying anatomic problem. That includes distal tracheal stenosis, laryngeal clefts, and complete tracheal rings or absent tracheal rings. This is a severe type four laryngeal cleft to the end of the left bronchus. 
And obviously a tracheotomy will not be of any value in this situation until you've repaired the cleft. Timing of intubation for the pediatric patient is based on age and long-term prognosis. Neonates, well, they can tolerate intubation for months. On the other side of the spectrum in teenagers, we should consider a tracheotomy after about two weeks. At any age, if long-term respiratory support is anticipated due to an underlying pathology, then an early tracheotomy should be considered. This consideration requires tough discussions with patient families about the realistic prognosis of their child's disease. You get into end-of-life discussions, and this is as much cultural and regional as it is medical. If you've got severe congenital anomalies, if you've had a severe brain injury, a hypoxic encephalopathy, if you've got anencephaly, if you've got tracheogenesis, these are discussions that ideally should be had before a tracheotomy is placed, with the decision being made, is it appropriate to prolong life? And often the key is the neurological status of the child. In a child where you and the family have decided to proceed with a tracheotomy, the next step is taking stock of the risks and how to mitigate them. Plus, remember, a tracheotomy merely changes the location of airway access, not the ventilation requirements. If you're requiring very high ventilator pressures before a tracheotomy, you will still require high pressures following a tracheotomy, and therefore you'll need a cuffed tracheotomy tube, and the ancillary risks are higher. In a perfect world, every tracheotomy would be planned, but as we know, that's not the case. Emergencies happen, kids love to throw curveballs. So to best care for all these patients, we need to be ready to emergently secure an airway if necessary. An emergent slash trach, as some call it, well, those have some pretty significant complications to try and avoid. To try and avoid the classic complications of pneumothorax, a false passage, or bleeding. Wow, that sounds like a stressful day. Okay, let's back it up and let's see how we'd approach a standard, controlled, neonatal tracheotomy where I have time to position the patient with a shoulder roll, elongate the neck, mark out my landmarks, the jugular notch, the midline, the thyroid cartilage. Okay, yeah, that seems like a much better place to start. Let's see what Dr. Rudder does next. I personally like to do a transverse incision. I inject some local and then I defat the incision because you've got a lower risk of a false passage should the tracheotomy be displaced. I know, I know what you're thinking. Babies roly-poly necks, they're so cute. But not when it comes to a tracheotomy. Their extra subcutaneous fat, it increases the risk for a false passage if their tracheotomy becomes displaced. So Dr. Rutter removes it both for the operative safety, but also to improve exposure and promote maturation of the stoma. Then we split the strap muscles in the midline. We divide the thyroid isthmus just with cautery if it's required. It depends where the thyroid isthmus is sitting in terms of the tracheal rings. We then place retractors to help deliver the trachea into view. Repeatedly check that you're in the midline on the trachea. Remember, 
These are intubated babies and children who likely have other tubes in their esophagus, which could feel firm. So remove all nasogastric tubes or other feeding tubes prior to this palpation step. You wanna be sure and really confirm that you're planning to make an incision on the trachea, not the esophagus. You then want to identify the tracheal rings and the cricoid cartilage. Typically in a neonatal trach, you would like to place the tracheotomy between the second and fourth tracheal rings. Neonate anatomy is tiny and there are a lot of critical structures in a very small space, including the lung apex, the carotid arteries, the innominate artery, and the esophagus. So we need to very carefully place stay sutures in this area. And anything sharp in a neonate's neck should be placed distal to proximal on the trachea. The reason for this is that you are far less likely for the tip of a needle or a knife to accidentally hit a lung apex or an innominate artery. We mature the stoma by suturing the skin down to the trachea. We do place sutures in all four quadrants of the incision, but the two distal sutures, those are the real lifesavers. The distal sutures are the ones that are potentially life-saving because you're trying to minimize the risk of a false passage. Finally, we are ready to place the tracheotomy tube. We prepare to secure it either by Velcro ties or by a twill string. If using Velcro, make sure they get sutured together so it's not accidentally displaced at the bedside. In Cincinnati at this time, the most common tracheotomy tube we use is a 3.5 neonatal silicon cuffed tube with an extended collar. That's because most of these children are being ventilated. That is the reason for placing the tracheotomy. Just when you thought it was safe, you still have one more technique to master. Actually, placing the tracheotomy tube into the stoma might not be as easy as it seems. You want to be very careful that you don't accidentally uh, penetrate the back wall of the trachea as you place these tracheotomy tubes. So if you're unsure, make the incision slightly bigger and look in. Be sure you're not tenting the back wall. Post-operatively, luck favors the prepared. So be sure to tape the obturator to the patient, have a spare tracheotomy tube, and a downsize option at bedside, plus monitoring is pretty critical. Get a chest x-ray to make sure you haven't caused inadvertently a pneumothorax. The child should be on routine monitoring. We don't usually use antibiotics. We change the ties on day three, we change the tracheotomy itself on day five, and then we teach the parents how to change a tracheotomy. Overall, this procedure is pretty well tolerated, but just like anything in surgery, even when we follow every step precisely, there are still some complications. If you have a cuff tube and there's too much pressure in the cuff, you can end up damaging the trachea from a very large cuff, as you can see here. Cuff trauma can possibly erode through the trachea and cause a tracheoesophageal fistula. But if you have any suspicion for cuff trauma, the best intervention is to just get a longer tube and put less pressure in the cuff. And this will allow the trachea to heal. 
In children with a history of tracheoesophageal fistula, it's possible to place a tracheotomy tube into the proximal pouch during an exchange. In this case, you're unable to ventilate the child. If that's the case, it's better to marsupialize the pouch to minimize the risk of a problem with ventilation during a trach change. Wait, Dr. Rudder, I think I'm gonna need a visual aid for that one. How do you marsupialize the pouch? This is with a telescope through the trach stoma. That is the device there. It has cautery, it has suction, it has a true cut biopsy capability. So you cauterize the common party wall, then you clip it like so, and then you advance it and repeat till you've got to the end of the pouch. And so the pouch is now marsupialized into the trachea. And so the risk that you will get a trach tube into the pouch is eliminated if there's no longer a pouch present. Okay, okay, so to recap, We've identified appropriate patients to consider a tracheotomy. We've placed the tracheotomy. We've dodged all the possible sticky complications. And now these kids are doing well, really well. Some, they'll even reach a stage where we're talking about decannulation. At Cincinnati Children's Hospital, we have a pretty strict decannulation protocol in place. Our decannulation protocol is you need to prove you don't need a tracheotomy. So we normally do a bronchoscopy, and if things look good, we put in a much smaller tracheotomy tube and place a plug on it. We'll fenestrate that tube if we need to, and I'll explain that shortly. We watch the child for 48 hours, and if they pass with flying colors, we send them home capping day and night for at least six weeks, and nighttime capping if they're over two and at a home pulse oximeter, it's useful if the child has a cough or a cold over that time. That's not all. If these patients do well after that time period, then they come back. They get another bronchoscopy, and if there's no suprastomal granulation tissue, then they're decannulated and they're monitored for another two nights. If they do well, we bring them back another six weeks later and if there's still a tracheocutaneous fistula, then we'll arrange that another six weeks later, we will remove this with an overnight stay in hospital. The reason for that delay is it allows the tracheocutaneous fistula to shrink about as small as it's gonna shrink. Fenestrating the tube allows plugging of the tracheotomy without compromising intraluminal tracheal volume due to the presence of a tube in the middle of the airway. Dr. Rudder has a pretty unique approach on how to achieve this fenestration. You need to fenestrate a trach tube, and this is usually if you are trying to decannulate a small child, and there's just not enough room around even a small uh, tracheotomy tube. The technique we use is to use a permanent marker to write numbers down the side of the tube. You do a bronchoscopy to visualize the numbers, and you can see you'll want to fenestrate this tube between the two and the three. And we use a sphenoid punch to make a hole in the side of the tube. And here's an example of what it looks like. We made a hole between the number two and three. You can see you can now plug the tracheotomy tube 
without it obstructing the trachea. If patients return and their cutaneous fistula persists, they're gonna need a formal closure, but a layered closure isn't the way to go. It has a lot of risks like subcutaneous emphysema and even attention pneumothorax. However, healing by secondary intention, well, that works really well. Want to remove the skin tract, apple core out the skin tract. As you can see, we're doing on the right. We're left with this tiny hole. We're going to put in a 2.5 tracheotomy tube and remove that one hour later when she's fully awake and then let it heal by secondary intention. It's very effective, very high closure rate, over 99%, and a almost zero complication rate. When using this technique, be sure to place a tracheotomy tube into the cord out hole prior to leaving the operating room, and then you can remove the tube one hour after the patient is fully awake. This decreases the risk of complications due to forceful coughing when patients are waking up from anesthesia. Thank you for joining this episode with Dr. Rudder, where we learned all the intricacies of pediatric tracheotomy. If you like this episode, download the Stay Current app, subscribe to our YouTube channel, check us out on social media, on Twitter or on Facebook. Leave us a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Brittany, and remember, knowledge, should be free.